Hello and welcome to Emotive Pixels Podcast, Season 2, Episode 5. Today's podcast will be on what remains of Edith Finch. I'm your host, Paulie Kroll, and joining me today is... Will Atkinson. Nate Stevens. Craig Schumann. This will be a spoiler cast like the rest of our podcasts, so if you haven't played what remains of Edith Finch. It's a pretty short game. You can easily make it through in one sitting. So I do recommend checking out the game and it'll make a lot more sense everything we're talking about. We're not going to go through every story beat. We just want to kind of talk about what the game means to us and the important parts that mattered. But before we start that, I just thought of an opening question a little bit before the uh, podcast started here. So I'm going to surprise everybody with it. And my question for you folks is what is your favorite and least favorite ambiguous ending to a media of any sort so because you're going to need a second to think about that or more i'm going to go first and i'm going to go with my favorite ambiguous ending would be from the sopranos um don't want to spoil that too much but i think it has just enough context and uh build up to make it a very powerful ending without telling you exactly what happens. I think it's a great um, place to try to work out in your brain what you think happened. My least favorite is going to be the episodic Stephen King Hulu series Castle Rock, which I thought was a great show, but the end just really fell apart. It seemed like it was rushed and it didn't seem so much ambiguous as they didn't know how to end it. Anybody else have any thoughts? One of the great things about the Sopranos one is that it will it came out pre like DVR time, so a lot of people think they saw stuff that happened that didn't happen. And it was really interesting thinking or hearing about how uh, in the culture a lot of people thought there was a different ending to that show than there was. It was pretty cool. Um, for myself. Uh, I'm not really sure about one that I dislike. I'll probably say sliders because I didn't want that thing to end. I just wanted to just keep going and they just jump off into who knows where and who knows what, but I just needed more sliders in my life. Um, sliders like the little mini cheeseburgers? Yeah, just like that. Oh, man. <laughs> sliders. Where they're like uh, jumping I into remember the sliders, anyway, yeah. It's great. Uh, best one? Probably Inception. It's got a great, great ending where the top is spinning and does it fall over? Oh, yeah. That's a really good one. That's a good one. Yeah. That, I was like, that's the default first one that comes to my mind was as far as when you meant an ambiguous ending. So I was like, what else has one? <laughs> so that's it for you, Craig? <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. Right, yeah. <laughs> he, he's like, the one Will said. Yeah, the one well said. No, Inception has a great ambiguous ending. I think Masters of None on Netflix ended in a fairly ambiguous way. The end of season two, at least. I'm trying to think of an ending that I hated for being ambiguous, or like a bad version of that. And there's nothing that comes immediately to mind. I would have to look it up. I can give you some time. I think my yeah. least favorite ambiguous ending. Okay, you're gonna, you're all going to jump up in my stuff because it's not really ambiguous, but as for what it means for the plot, it's really ambiguous. The ending of Anna Karenina, where the main character just jumps in front of a train is not ambiguous, but like, what the hell does that mean about the book I just read that had nothing about like, I don't know. I think that's weird. And I guess my favorite 
and properly ambiguous ending is definitely Tarkovsky's Andre Rublev, where it's like a black and white three-hour film. And then at the end, it's like this bizarre, unknowable shot of like paintings of the actual painter of Andre Rublev, but it's in color for no reason. Uh, I don't know what it means, but it is very memorable. I refuse to let us leave this section without somebody mentioning uh, Blade Runner. Okay. That's also a good one. This yeah, is a, the original this, one. Okay. What if, I've never felt so put on the spot by a prompt. This is really tough. Yeah, I was just like, I am just frozen. I love the fact that Nate set, started off by saying, everybody's going to jump on me for this, and then said a whole bunch of words that I didn't understand. <laughs> well, I mean, the character committing suicide at the end of the story is not other things going on. Well, I thought the character committing suicide is a pretty non-ambiguous ending. It, it seems actually way. quite definite. Feels fairly definitive. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Did anyone? Yeah. What's another bad ambiguous ending? People hate the ending of Firewatch. I don't really know why. Yeah. I didn't think that was ambiguous. So gone much, home. No. Uh, yeah, they're not ambiguous. That's tough. Yeah. KOTOR 2 just didn't have a last act, so that was kind of... <laughs> yeah, there's not really, a whole... Okay. Like, all right, let's just they, do finishes. They put it there's in later. There's not a whole but... lot, unless you guys can correct me, of ambiguous endings in games. There's a lot of um, uh, cliffhangers because they're setting up a sequel and everything like that. Yeah, that never happens. But this game... Edith Finch, I feel like it had a pretty ambiguous endings to pretty much every story. Other than their deaths. The Last of Us had a pretty ambiguous ending. Yeah, that was that was that, pretty good. A, yeah, I was like, yeah, that's, that's a, a great one. one. I just yeah. I just went back and listened to uh Last of Us spoiler cast too, and I can't believe I didn't think of that after just thinking of that question. Her story. That's a really good one. Her story. Okay. That's an ambiguous fucking game right there. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. I feel like one of these you should just text to Craig Will, because um, it's going to bother him. He didn't come up with anything. <laughs> no, you got a uh, whatever it is you said. So, how <laughs> move? I feel you heard. got that trash you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, meaningful acknowledgement whatever. from the host. There was a show I didn't watch it. I'm sorry. It was interesting when you said it, but I immediately said forgot. Of yes, but Masters of None. The Last of Us is a way better option for like a very good ambiguous that ending. Is. That one, that's the most meaningful one to me. Yeah. Yes. So, I feel like although this game came out quite some time ago, and a lot of us played it uh, probably years ago does sort of have relevant timing for us to do our spoiler cast on it now as the game was just released on the iOS app store back on August 16th. If we had kept with our schedule, perhaps it would have been closer to the release date, but uh, we'll point point at many directions. Um, (laughs) But I'm really excited to get into this game. I really appreciated this game and I wanted to jump ahead on this document we have here just now off the top of my head and talk about how we kind of experienced this game because I feel like that's important for me to start out with because Nate actually uh, pretty much forced me to play the game if I remember correctly, not like with a gun to my head or anything like that but he came over and visited my house and pretty much sat on the couch while i played through the whole thing and he watched and your dog Um, liked it so much he ate my shoes this is true but he did eat the shoes before the game so oh never mind we don't know alice's opinion on this game then that was probably maybe three years ago i'm gonna guess 
when we played through that. Um, how about you, though, Nate? Because you had clearly experienced the game before that. Have you played through this game? Uh, when? How many times? With whom? All those things? I think I played it on launch alone uh, back in 2017 because I was really into the whole kind of Sony Santa Monica indie game sort of culture and kind of everything those studios produced. So I was really excited about this coming from the Unfinished Swan, their previous game. And uh, yeah, I immediately loved it. I was in the Northwest at the time, right? No, I was back not. in 2017? Interesting. Uh, it served to fulfill the Northwest that I was not living in type of mood that I really appreciated. All right. How about yourself, Craig? Because I know you had played through it before. Yeah, I played through it back right around the original release date. So sometime back in 2017 when it came out on the PS4. Same or at least similar story to Nate. I had played the previous game from Giant Sparrow, which was... Um, Unfinished Swan? Unfinished Swan. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I played Unfinished Swan, had really enjoyed that and was actually looking forward to when this one came out as well. So... I was one that was on my radar and definitely played it right when it came out. See, I don't pay attention enough because I played through Unfinished Swan and really liked it, but I did not know until playing this game that it was the same developer at all or any yeah. of the backstory or anything like that. This is interesting. This is one of the first like, Annapurna releases, right? Uh, yeah, I was trying to remember if Annapurna released it. Yeah, it was, I think it was the first release from Annapurna. Huh, interesting. Yeah. It How, was this flower and like Gora Goa. We're all in like that same year. How about yourself, Will? Yeah, I just had a brief experience with it, um, kind of around the same time. Um, I thought this would be a great one to play uh, with the girlfriend watching. We got about halfway through before she fell asleep on me, and just the way life goes, didn't have a chance to get back to it, unfortunately. But did get the chance to watch you finish it for us, so that was great. So watch you finish it for us refers to just recently, a couple weeks ago, we all got together on Discord remotely and watched Nate play through the entire game. Uh, ended up being, what, about three hours or something like that? Right around Yeah, there. roughly. So I think it was a great refresher for me because it's been years since I played it, but I found I actually remembered a lot about this game. I was surprised about that. But um, let's jump into some of the topics about the game now that we talked about how we experienced it. Nate has a question right at the top of here that I am curious what he has to say about it. Is this the best walking simulator? Is that just your new question for every game, Nate? Yeah. Is that, I asked is that, that the, about Death Stranding. Is, I asked that about Edith Finch. Is season two, uh, would yeah. it be better as a racing game? Is this the best walking simulator? 100%. Did I ask this about SnowRunner? I hope so. I hope so too. Because yes. It's no runner on walking simulator. Walking that truck through that mud. Well, I was going to say it's a hiking simulator, but then we actually did cover that as a game, so I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that the reason I put this question on here is half joking, but also half, I think a lot of people say that about this game. It's kind of like a lot of the Steam reviews kind of point to that fact, and it's kind of like held in high esteem as the walking simulator with the most like game in it, I think. So I was curious what kind of thoughts that sparked in this group. I think the fact that there are those things that aren't walking discredits from being a walking simulator. I mean, you literally roll down the hill as a shark and sharks can't walk. Yeah, they call it a rolling simulator. He's itself. got you there. Yeah, he really he does. does. Yeah. Game over, lawyered. 
<laughs> QED. I think. Uh, okay, that's that. Every time I, every time you come up with this question, it bothers me a little bit because I think we already both know what the best walking simulator is. Is it Dear Esther? Gone home. It is Dear Esther. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. Gone home is the best walking simulator. <laughs> yeah, that is correct. And not just because like the first is always the best. Because I'm not even sure if Dear Esther is the first, but that is that it is. It might have been when it was a Half Life bot, but first it, that made mainstream attention. So I'm not really sure where we want to jump in here. I suppose do we want to kind of do a run through of the plot of the game? I can do that if we'd like. I don't yeah. know if we All need right. it, but I'm, I'd love to hear you try. I'm gonna try I, I to know the summation of how you're gonna try roll to do through. it quick. Pretty much, the game opens up with you as Edith Finch writing in a journal and going back to visit your childhood home that is now deserted. Walking through the home, you begin encountering all these strange rooms and that contain shrines to previously deceased family members. You experience each of the stories of those family members' deaths through books and journal entries and, and little pieces of text that kind of open up a playable version of the story of their death. Going through and uncovering some of the secrets that you didn't quite realize when you were growing up in the house about how your family is cursed, everybody in your family dies in strange ways, and how your grandmother began uh, creating these shrines in all their rooms and didn't let anybody change anything about the rooms after the family members died. Um, at some point after um, one of the deaths, I don't recall which one, your mother ends up uh, blocking up the rooms and sealing them up. And your grandmother goes around and puts peepholes on each of the doors so you could still see into them and things like that. So very strange things going through the house and kind of just experiencing all these different lives and deaths that occurred in the house. Going through up until you go through all the family members, which I believe we'll go through later and talk about each individual, not maybe every, but the ones that matter to us, individual stories. Um, you go through until you finally um, get to when you left the house, your grandmother tried having you read a story and it's the story of when she went out to the original house that Odin Finch had sailed across the seas to get to um, the Northwest. What part of Washington was this set in? Is this Freddy Harbor? Yes. I think that was it. Um, and then eventually uh, you find out that after you left the house, your grandmother died. Your mother then passes away from a terminal illness. And in your in her will, she left you a mysterious key that unlocks in a strange way that house too. It wasn't like a key to the front door. It was a key to something inside the house. So, um, And that's how... Edith actually found out about this, and towards the end of the game, you discover that you're not actually playing as Edith, you're playing as Edith's son, whose name I forget. I'm not sure if it's here in the doc. Nope. So you're playing as Edith's son, who's reading the journal that's covering everything that happened and how he learns about everything that happened to his family. So that could explain some of the strange things that once you start playing the phone tag game of reading somebody else's words. But uh, that's pretty much the story of Edith Finch. Anything anybody wants to add on to that? All right. It's been a lovely podcast. Uh, good night, everybody. So <laughs> <hungry. Bam. laughs> Crush it.
I don't know if this is relevant, but it is interesting that you as like the main character have to sneak into all these rooms. You don't go into anyone's room through the front door, right? You're like always finding clever ways in because of the grandma securing the rooms. The mother securing the rooms, oh, but yes. yes. That's a fair point. I didn't think about that before. That didn't really think, strike me the first time as much as it did this time. I think the design of the house and the secret passages and everything like that is really cool. It, it's some of the ways you open up, you like you open up a book. There's that pop-up book one where yeah. you open that up and you can unlock it and always crawling through all these secret passages in between walls and under beds and things like that. I thought it was really cool. It's a, it's a neat way to explore the house. It's a little interesting that in a game with so many vivid stories, the house is definitely the main character. Is it? I don't know about that. I think that. so. Like, don't you, I, I mean, why do you think it's not? I think the house is more of the gameplay in this than the main character. How does the house grow or change or evolve or? Well, your understanding of it. Yeah. Okay. It already did, but it's more just tied in direct. I'd say like the house ties in directly to the grandma, to Edie Finch. Cause she's the one who ended up putting all these crazy extensions on and everything like that, which are very, uh, Whimsical. not up to code. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, they are not, but they are fascinating. I was going to say, I think the it is like the main steel thread of the game, right? But I don't think it makes them the main character. I think it has the most character, and it is kind of the focal point of the game, that the entire plot revolves around much more so than your actual character. But I see what you mean about character as like an evolving, like, like a thing to be interacted with. I feel like this story could have, it would have been less interesting, but it could have been set in like a normal house. You know? I mean, in that, in a, in one of his interviews, Ian Dallas talked about like, this could have been like a menu of playable vignettes. Or a, That's definitely or true. a hotel yes. or a neighborhood, you know? Yeah. Because it's pretty much an anthology story and yeah. the house is just how we're experiencing it. The house is really the walking simulator portion of the game. Yeah, it is a very interesting conceit, though, to be fair, as far as putting together an anthology series and deciding to figure out a way that links things together in some form of like narrative through line that actually means there's a reason for these things to exist with one another is, I think, fantastically done here. Yeah, I mean, they can't all be Tales from the Crypt, but they can all steal from Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Can't confirm um, but seeing as we're talking about the house, um, there's a couple really cool quotes in this game. And one of those quotes is introduced to you, right? When you, uh, first start exploring the house, I think it's right in the kitchen, one of the first rooms. Um, and the quote, nothing in the house looked abnormal. There was just too much of it, like a smile with too many teeth. I thought that was a really cool quote. Um, I think while we were playing through it, we all kind of did one of those, oh boy, uh, moments. And I feel like the writing in this game is quite good. There's a lot of moments that really kind of make you wonder, pull at the heartstrings, just very affecting language a lot of the time. And I think that's definitely part of what makes this game special to me. And I think a lot of that was tied into kind of what 
we've referenced before, we've listened to some interviews with uh, the director of the game, Ian Dallas, and kind of what their um, theory was about um, the gameplay kind of being from a, a viewpoint of constantly making the player wonder and explore creating a place where players never feel comfortable, where there is always, they're always in the mindset of an explorer is the quote from Ian Dallas. So that combined with the story, which kind of is constantly trying to leave you awestruck, kind of a combination sometimes between sadness and humor. It kind of jumps the emotional range very quickly throughout this game. And a lot of times you're not quite sure how to feel about a story kind of brought on by the fact that it's not very clear what happens in, in a lot of these stories. I think it's just a, it's a fun game to talk about because it makes you think about things differently, whether that's about death or mental illness or difficulties family have with trauma, just a ton of difficult topics that are kind of covered in a lighthearted way, which is not always the way you experience these things. Does anybody have any thoughts on that or... I kind of wonder if, like, I came into this with, like, a, or I kind of felt as we were playing, as I was playing, like, this sense of denial, almost. Like, um, I, for me, and obviously, it never felt like, oh, this is a real thing that happened to people in their this video game world, right? It always felt like, oh, this is a story. These are fables. These are, um, we are trying to teach our lessons to our family through, you know, these caricatures of the family and less of like, here is a historical account of what happened to the family. And so I always kind of, when, um, if I recall correctly, one of the the girls starves to death, like like, I it felt more of a parable of like, okay, this is why greed is a bad thing and why you should or, uh, why greed is something to be avoided and th those kinds of things and the fact that she died at the end kind of felt like a, um, what are they the grim fairy tales where oh the bad guy dies or you, or the good guy dies and it's a shocking ending but you don't really think oh somebody was murdered or there was a life lost here it's like oh that's just a, a interesting way for the tale to end so um like I, I do did see them all and definitely saw, saw it more than once so you, you get the sense that okay maybe it it's weird that there would even be this disconnect for me at all because obviously it's a, all a fabricated story to the first place but um it just felt like even in their world i was not fully set fully accepting of the fact that these were quote-unquote real people so i don't know i think um that is kind of the design of the game. If you listen to some of the interviews with the director, he kind of loves that. It seems like, because I've listened to multiple now, he kind of loves that concept of not letting people know what happens because he believes that um, he was talking about how in this day and age, when everybody has an Oracle in their pocket and they can get the answer to anything, <laughs> he enjoys leaving the stories, giving you all the facts but also leaving the story wide open for interpretation. And I think it's interesting the way you took that is a totally valid way to take that. But there's also where you could look at it as she wasn't greedy and she didn't um, 
eat everything which caused her to die because that's a very fantastical um story but it's possible right before she turns into a cat and runs out the window she did eat some strange things in her room including the holly berries which could be poisonous and fluoride toothpaste and things like that after her parents sent her to bed so it could be she died from parental neglect because they didn't let her eat and she poisoned herself it could be covering up some other kind of mental trauma, which I've seen some other crazy theories on the internet talk about. Um, I think that specific one is one of the most discussed deaths, probably because it's the first one. And it's that first moment where you're like, oh, this is going to do some weird things. Did she actually turn into a cat and then a shark and then a tentacle monster? Or is there some other kind of real world solution to this? And I think that whole concept comes up a lot in the game. Um, even revolving around the main story of this cursed family, are they actually cursed? Did any actual cursed things happen to them or do they, is it just a series of unfortunate events with Lemony Snicket? (laughs) And also like, if it wasn't for the notebook that opens, that has a death date, a lot of these don't necessarily like, they're not explicitly death other than that. Like that's a big context clue for it. Yeah, a lot of them end in some sort of ambiguity of mystery. Maybe something happened here. Yeah, like, or maybe there was, to your point, maybe they were touching on mental health issues of suicide happened after this, or they were murdered, or something else may have occurred. Yeah, it makes me think of the the son who witnessed his sister possibly get murdered. We're not sure about that. But he kind of built himself a bunker underneath the house for years and years and years before finally escaping the house. And then it seems like he gets hit by a train. But directly after that, you walk out and the train tracks are sort of demolished. And there's no way for you to know, was there actually a train going through here or was that all symbolism? I think they do this to you multiple times in the game to kind of leave that. Because there's certain, certainly stories in this game that could not have happened, like flying a kite and the wind gets so strong that the tent gets picked up and falls on you. Seemed more likely that he got struck by lightning, but not confirmed. What about doing a full 360 on a swing? I know Will was a huge fan of that one. Totally possible. I think back to Will's point, like even if these things are about death, the game is really like interested in the the way that you get there, like it's surrealism helps the like moments leading up to it. Like what, what the feelings are. Like I think of the, the baby in the bathtub, like being a fun, joyful experience. It's just kind of a different, yeah, I don't know. Death happens, but it's not like, I guess part of it is. Death happens is exactly what I was thinking. Like if you look at anybody's family tree, it, go back 80 years and they're all dead so i'm not like that this was cursed uh was something that i mean maybe there's more to the curse that i missed but that just because all these people died meant that the family was cursed didn't seem to didn't hold water for me the obsession with dead people and how they died that was a little bit um abnormal i think those two things were combined because i think the grandmother Edie created the curse as a way to cope with these deaths but then also kind of found 
a way to cope with it within that curse where she, it seems like she kind of was the one that would leave these shrines and make everybody's death also a beautiful thing as well as a tragic thing. So I feel like that's kind of the self-perpetuating curse death sequence that um, she brought up and kind of inflicted on the family. And that's what a lot of people that play this game, I've, I've seen people talking about how it's really a game about emotional neglect and parental neglect and things like that and how it's really it's not like the grandmother was going around killing people but she also wasn't creating a safe environment for people not to be dying all the time i don't necessarily agree with that viewpoint but just the fact that it's totally a valid viewpoint i think is pretty cool uh it kind of opens up a lot of different ways that we could talk about this but yeah i think Definitely one of the themes of this game is not always looking at death in such a sad and morose way, um, but also, um, as Nate put it, finding the beauty in a baby drowning in a bathtub. <laughs> yeah. Let's be playful um, about it. It is. It is a very playful sequence. It's a lot of fun playing in that bathtub as the baby. And I just thought it was a throwback to Super Rub-A-Dub. I also thought that. <laughs> two out of four hosts get that Some, something else uh, we had brought up was the swinging around the loop that story is a poem written by the sibling of the person who swung around the loop and then went off the cliff and they kind of made it into this beautiful thing where it could be viewed as it was a suicide because the child was unhappy and they could have threw themselves off the cliff but they made it into this oh he wanted to be an astronaut and he finally flew away. Um, that is very upsetting that... topics, but, but presented in a, um, like whimsical almost. Yeah. What? Whimsical other... heartfelt. Is it a way of coping or is it what actually happened? There's no real way of knowing, I guess. What's the other game that we did a review on? There was another one where, um, there was a whole spaceship of Carter. water. Yeah, I had almost like got them mixed up in my mind. There's a lot of interesting parallels in those scenes that I, th I th thought was really interesting. Absolutely, because a lot of it is experiencing text in gameplay. S some words mm -hmm. that somebody wrote and taking that literally into gameplay. Um, I think there's a ton of common uh similarities between those two games did vanish could beat that carter have a lot of text yeah oh i get i mean i don't want to spoil it again because yeah, we already did that on. podcast let's not relitigate <laughs> it has been some number of years but yes absolutely nate the text okay. as fact was like the game yeah that'd be time for a replay but I think that's an interesting time to pull up a question we had about, do we think there is a curse? Does anybody think there was a curse or does any, does anybody kind of. I think the curse might be the affixation kind of like Will was saying, it's not these, it's not even the, the deaths or the fantasticness of the deaths, but the like constructing entire house around repressing memories of people and like just this, yeah, the way of viewing it, it seems like more of the curse commonly having death in the house is um kind of the way one of the um podcasts i listened to a spoiler cast for this game as well um by choose your character was kind of the way they viewed it as 
she cursed the family by obsessively having them focus on death and um, to a point where death became such a constant of their life. They just expected it and kind of accepted it and knew it was going to happen. So things like that. By like choosing to keep living in it, kind of almost invited it back in or just to view things like finding freedom to fly it. it, Like that's not really the same thing as committing suicide, but if you're so immersed in death, you might think of it that way. I, I wonder, like, I don't have any personal experience with this, but, um, I believe there are people who will like close off a child's room if they die or, um, you know, even just like go off to college, you you shut the door and it you just that room is a room that doesn't belong to the house anymore. Almost like that behavior seems pretty. It doesn't seem out. Doing it once, having it once or maybe twice, doesn't seem like something that I would think was completely out of the bounds for most um, families. That to to experience a loss like that, like how or when do you finally get get to the point that you're okay? Clear out that that room. If you were also in a situation where you could you like had free reign to continue building your house, and so it was just once you close it, you don't have to think about that anymore. Like it, it's a behavior that almost feels reasonable to me. Um, it's 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 um what do they call it the the diff the the differences in the degree like because there's 12 of them or whatever the number is you're like okay well that was too many but like some it's 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 interesting in that it's a behavior that could almost seem reasonable it's like having more than two cats you know no one would ever do that monsters Uh, don't get me wrong. I don't actually vilify Edie in this story. I more of think of this game as a view of the whole Finch family as a character. And I think everybody has a part of this. I don't think uh, certain people had to. There's definitely some tragic stories where people felt they were trapped in the house. But I don't think everybody was trapped in the house. And some people may not have even died. But um, I do think that it is remarkable how much death happened to this family and and all the strange deaths and everything like that so you could definitely see if these things were happening to you how you could be right, like yeah, yeah we're, we're cursed man <laughs> you hear about my cousin you know uh i think it's like that it occurs generation over generation over generation that you're like this might be a little too much i like will's idea though that if you were like if you had no building codes no architectural concerns and no resource constraints you could just keep going infinitely. Like it's if not. You live, if you lived in a mansion with fifty rooms, right? Then like, okay, we just don't go in that room anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the other, and it just like you, you said it twice. So I just kind of want to come back to it, Polly. Like, fifteen people died in two hundred years, hundred and fifty years. Like, does that? You, do you? Does that seem like a lot? Just so we're no, it does not. But it is a lot of child deaths. I think that's kind of what. Ah, I see. <laughs> okay, yeah. It seem like more, and because you're not. Yeah, ex- this fair. game is not 200 years long. This game is about three to four hours long. 
So it seems like it's happening a lot faster. Sure. I'm just thinking the, well, I the think time the frame. DCF is... would be knocking on that door pretty quickly. Um, Nine, Cause there 19. are quite a few children that die right next to each other. But no, that's a great point. I mean, there's definitely a possibility that there's no curse. There's also nothing in the game that says there's not a curse. I think that's one of the cool things. One of the things that occurs to me is the relationships between people. Because in my mind, there's only ever like one person in this game. And so I don't really feel like I like the relationships between people was something that was built or uh, expanded upon. Um, Obviously, that's not true because the characters were interacting with each other in the... um, What's the word? House. Uh, In the scenes. In the... Whatever the... There's a cooler word for scene, which... Well, I, when you bring it up, I think of like there was the the boys that shared a room, and when one of them died, they they roped it off, <laughs> and he still stayed in the, in the other part of the room. I believe it was boys, but um, if what you're getting at, I think one of the the concepts of the game is kind of that uh, what's the best word like emotional distance between family members and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's like... No, I see what you're saying, Will. You're totally right. It's like removed anytime characters do interact. Yeah, it it feels like anytime there's a connection, it's I've had to kind of go out of my way to try and see it and understand and be like, oh, that's the character from this other story. Like, it almost feels like the the interrelatedness of the family is more like an Easter egg than than part of the narrative does that make sense yes i think that is one of the reasons they included the family tree in the menu there because it makes it a lot easier with all these characters to know who was related to who and everything i mean obviously there's like the hunting trip where they're together in that scene and she witnesses her father die and that's your mother who witnessed her father die um edith's mother but um but there's but yeah, I always have that problem in games where connecting. I can't remember anyone in games yes. ever. There's just something, something weird about in like Firewatch as well. Like you, you brought up the two brothers, right? The 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 other kid died or gone missing or something. So, how long did he live in that room with the brothers? I don't know. It's like living with a corpse right next to you. How how did that affect him? How what well, how did that change him? Did did that change the way he went along with his life? Like, uh, it, presumably, everybody else in the family also lived with all of these mausoleums throughout the house. How did that not? Why why didn't it seem to affect anybody else? Like, there's a the 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 connectedness the, the 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 part of the family relating to each other and and like uh, other than the vignettes that's the word i was looking for other than in the vin- the, the very specific parts in the vignettes it didn't feel like the, the that, it, that i was experiencing a cohesive family it felt more like different stage plays does that make sense that yeah, does I, make I, sense i didn't even think about the like 
yeah, the fact that the like effects of the other deaths are not really part of I mean, I guess it could just feed into everyone's like obsession with death, but I think that's the part I was trying to bring up probably poorly about how Edie's obsession with these stories and keeping everybody's more than their memory alive, their deaths alive was affecting the family and leading to everybody believing in this curse and kind of perpetuating that curse. I think that's one of the big views of this game that paints Edie as the villain or the monster of this game because her obsession with these characters' deaths was negatively affecting the entire family and being so obsessed and focused on it. Like another way to look at it is maybe it's Edith is the one who's obsessed with the deaths and nobody else had this same perception fixation with the the dead people throughout the house that she did um i don't know it, anyway there there was a whole I, I would like you to explain that a little bit how did she she didn't even know about a lot of these stories they, it, it was closed off to her she's the narrator though like this yeah, whole story is her explain she's telling us about it telling us character the main character whoever us is she's telling us right her child so we're just getting so kind of like i was talking in the the very beginning of this podcast um like this is more or this to me feels more like a set of vignettes stories that she is passing off to her kid um fables here's things to do better in your life here's things to look out for um but they're not uh, it's like i've borrowed names so that this seems like a cohesive story but these are really just um it's the mario brothers thing you drop all the same characters in but the story is completely different and they don't actually have anything to do with each other every time like um yeah yeah so, like, coming from that perspective, if she's the, if Edith is the author of the story, um, you know, maybe she's written um, uh, with Edie as the, the big bad guy, the overarching villain who's in the background, but it's it's her perception, her fixation on uh, the deaths of each of these people that we're kind of coming across. Which can almost go back into the dissociative yeah, I was thinking that when you were saying it. If this is your his mother's ramblings that he, she wrote for him about all these people that never existed. So cool. <laughs> is there any specific stories, death stories, sequences, whatever you want to call them, because they're all death, pretty much, uh, that anybody wants to bring up? Anything that somebody liked the gameplay of, thought was their favorite part, anything like that? Objection. Leading question. We're going to talk about what's-his-face's fish cannery scene. Duh. Uh, can you help me remember his name? It starts with an L. It's, it's not Leonard. It's unforgettable. Lewis. You'll never forget any Lewis. detail about it. Yeah. What's his name? Lewis. Segway, man. Uh, the cannery scene. It's obviously great. Um, <clears throat> Do you want to describe to, what happens well, in the cannery scene? I was going to say, scene? since I messed it up so bad, does someone else want to describe it? But yes, it is the, like... It's a scene where you're playing as a young man named Lewis who works at a cannery, chopping off fish heads and putting them on the line for processing. And as you go along, it you, like 
your imagination, your imagined world, Lewis's imagined world grows bigger and bigger and more prominent in his brain. And you begin to navigate him through his imagined like video game world while your other hand with the other thumbstick is like still doing your daily job. And it represents the like his slow erosion to his imaginary world and kind of a fading away into, uh, yeah, into his head, which I think struck me as being partially about dementia, being partially about like video game addiction and the like relation to, especially around the time that this came out, there were big thoughts about big thoughts and discussions and articles in the New York times kind of right at the same time, actually about like the underemployed male workforce is like atypically engaged in video games and all of their free time. And so there was some kind of thoughts and debate as to if that's what the scene was actually talking about. I didn't really see it that way, but it's interesting to think of it that way. I think that the mental health and kind of family specific angle is interesting, but just, just the way that it's done and the way that like unbelievably naturally, like one thing just slowly takes over the other while your other hand is just doing the job is such a cool example of the mechanic really representing what's happening in the story. Yeah, with that, it was absolutely like phenomenally implemented that as you're trying to control one piece of it, you're also like the actual, I guess, feel, um, cutting board that you're working on, like starts to change into something else. You start to like see, and instead of looking at the reflection, you're seeing like into a different world. Um, especially as it transitions into almost like a top-down adventure game, <laughs> as opposed to that, while you're still also doing the cutting. And that fish head removal device cuts your head off at the end of the story. Yeah. Or do you cut your own head off during the end of the story? I think Ambiguous. the thing that always jumps out to me about his death is Lewis was the brother of Milton, um, who also um, escaped into another world, but almost it seems literally... Um, because the only uh, viewing you have of him is a flip book and he was an artist where it shows him drawing a door and then uh, or actually finding a magic paintbrush drawing a door and then going into that door and then he disappeared uh, he's never seen from again by the family and that's when they started locking up all the doors um, so I think both the brothers kind of escaped and I think that was kind of uh, a big emotional weight on Lewis and um I just think the the correlation between those two stories was important. Also, the fact that the previous game by this company, Punfinish Swan, has um, that artist king that has a magic paintbrush and everything like that and wears a crown and, and Milton wears a crown around the house before going into this door. So it's a clear tie into that game and possibly yeah. a, um, a magical realist explanation for what happened to Milton. Maybe not. Maybe the unfinished swan is all imagination of Milton somewhere else in the world. But um, I just think that all those things, all those things you said, absolutely, Nate. I didn't get any of the um, addiction to video game as much as just an escapism thing. I feel like he was uh, yeah, I didn't. severely like uh, had severe mental issues that needed to be worked through. And having him stay in that house and having him work that job that he clearly was not um, stimulated by was the worst possible thing for him. And that's what led to it. But, but definitely I mean, that a powerful itself... scene. When you 
are going through that game and it's going through all the different um like top down and then it goes into first person and everything like that and when you actually in the game open up a door and all of a sudden you're in the cannery and you walk up on yourself uh, mm-hmm. I felt like that was a super powerful part of the game and you could see yourself, but you're not in your own body. And you're like, that's when I think the narration says like he knew now that the real world was his imagination and this was all the, the fake and everything like that, which led to his death. But yeah, that's one of those huge, like gut punch lines of like, oof. Yeah. And, the, and the same with like, he chose that moment to fly like ugh. big, heavy, beautiful sentences that you know means so much more than they do on the surface. Any other death stories anybody wants to bring up? Yeah, I want to bring up Barbara's, which maybe not as much for the actual narrative, but hers is the one that was set within a comic book, and you're flipping through the pages, but then as you're flipping through them, you're also like entering into the panels. Um, And I believe it was taking place like during Halloween with like the full music going on as well but it was also reminding me of 13 i don't know if any of you guys played that it was a like illustrated shooter from the ps2 arrow era i think um but i absolutely loved that scene and seeing again for the second time just brought joy to my face and i was like why is there not more games doing that thing like what a fun interesting way to like enter between different narrative pieces and then also like bounce in and out of like quote unquote gameplay. Void yeah. Bastards? Yeah, Void Bastards is a good option. All right, fair enough. But I, I see what, you will. But I think this is more than just the self shadedness of it. It's a really interesting yeah. tonal shift of the game. It's at a great yeah. time to shift tone, and it's such a great, like, absolutely, you said it. It plays the actual John Carpenter Halloween song and everything like yeah. that and it's <laughs> such a fun like tales from the crisp esque comic book story or creep show maybe you want to yeah. call it is it uh, tales from the crisp your favorite holiday cereal polly <laughs> thought it was his favorite ship <laughs> oh um, wait, only wait, wait. only Can, in england what flavor would tales from the crisp be uh, golden just just the cobweb Ooh, oh. dusty cobwebs can you yeah i i guess this what was 13 i know 13 was cell shaded but like was it totally was, related to this no no it was okay. like I don't an know. assassin no, it game wasn't it yeah it was like a um it was just a conspiracy thing it was like a secret agent with amnesia and you were like unraveling clues behind your identity but it definitely set up it was kind of the inverse of this because as you were going through and playing it and shooting like comic book panels would pop up to show more of the combats like you take a shot and like hit someone and like a panel pop up and like bam or something like that or like zoom in on like what the effect was oh it is very void bastards but back to barbara i think here and now we should definitively figure out what happened to barbara because it's very open-ended where it ends so fantastically where um eventually she was a childhood star that had a famous scream in horror movies and eventually um her her fans or possibly monsters come and take her and they leave behind her ear in a music box what happened to barbara it's interesting because like at the end of the disappeared and her little brother went all kind of i don't talk anymore and then hit himself under the house 
Well, it's like played off as if all the monsters swarming her at the end are like a celebration, right? But then they like turn. Like, I think the scene officially leaves with them seeming hostile. Well, this is a comic book about her death. Yeah. Who wrote the comic book? How they get the details? Um, I think that her boyfriend killed her. Her boyfriend was kind of trying to show her how to find her real scream. And um, I almost thought when you see the hook man with the tape over his face and everything like that, that that was her boyfriend trying to scare her. She pushes him off the stairs and he falls through a table. I think that her boyfriend killed her, went a little bit too far with the game. But um, does anybody have any different theories? Did they run away together? Did they just leave? Did monsters come and get them? Whose ear was that? <laughs> I was trying, trying to remember. Um, I think the boyfriend is the one that made the most sense to it, but I also kind of enjoy the idea that there might be like an actual serial killer and an entirely separate narrative that just is with this serial killer that's taking out people. All right. So we're not going to definitively, you're going to let me down. No definitive yep. answers on this podcast. Nope. No. This uh, Ian Dallas would not worst. want us to agree. This is the worst ambiguous ending. (laughs) We can edit that at the beginning. Are there any other death stories anybody wants to bring up? I loved... Well, wait, does Will have one? I loved the swing one. Just the, like, and he chose to fly is such a... I, I don't even remember what the specific line is, but whatever it is about, like on that day he flew or something. Yeah. I thought that was a very powerful story as well. Um, If we're going to bring that up, I definitely want to bring up both that and the cannery um, scene. Both have um, kind of a neat thing. And I'm curious because I played this on a PlayStation three and the dual analog stick was very brothers esque where it's that pat your head and rub your belly thing where you have to do two different things. Um, you played that on mouse and keyboard, so it didn't seem like that was difficult at all because in the swing scene, you have to control each foot with an analog stick. And it's actually very difficult to get up to that speed to do the full swing around, but it looked very simple for you. Um, I played on a controller, an Xbox one controller. Oh, you did. Uh, Yeah. Okay. And I don't think the swing scene required both sticks. I think I only used the left one. Interesting. I almost certainly remember it both being both feet. I, man, did I just like you might have just bring my leg walk, disability into the game? Did you one know, foot one yeah, foot? That thing just doesn't work, so we're not going to use that. <laughs> Interesting. And what about the cannery? It looked like that was effortless to you as well. That was twin sticks. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I was curious about the cannery in particular because um, I used to play Final Fantasy uh, 11 dual boxing, which means I played two characters at the same time. Basically, one person was my right hand, one person was my left hand. And one of the hardest, hardest things to do is to walk in two directions at the same time. Like, it's it takes a lot of mental process, mental power to be able to try to, to do that task. Normally, it's like you just shoot off in one direction and, and like, you can only... Re- I can only like guide one person at a time. Um, I think I thought it was very interesting because I didn't actually get to play that myself. I just saw you play it, Nate, 
but I'm I was curious about it because they the way they move you into it, it is a lot of the same kind of tricks that I was was finding like if you get one into a repetitive motion then you can think about the other one and the other one just kind of ta- continues that repetitive motion um and then you know as it becomes a built-in grained uh part of instead of it being something you have to think about it just becomes like second nature then you can spend more and more energy doing more and more complicated thoughts um with the other side and i i could see the like game design part of that and i was curious to hear a little bit more about how the actual mechanics of that uh worked so two sides one from my like play experience even on the first playthrough that scene works exactly like you said where the fish canning like as like as it like is graphically represented as the imagination scene gets bigger it's like perfectly in time with your like reflexes being developed for like how to respond to like really basic stimulus so you're like paying more and more attention to that game as your brain's getting more used to like oh there's a fish in your peripheral vision like do this motion um the other thing is on the shall we play a game which is a podcast that's now uh not any active any longer their interview with Ian Dallas, the director, he was talking about how that scene began its life as like two complete separate game design ideas. So in the fish canning scene, your boss would approach, you could actually chop off your own finger. There was all these like fail states that could happen in each game. And when they were playing it together, they're like, this is not like, this takes like all of your concentration and it's not fun and failure isn't the point we're trying to make here. So they ended up like pairing things out of each thing until they got to this, like what they said was like a quarter of each game's original vision of game design. And together that made like a full game in a way that they like never would have expected on the game design doc until they like put it through a lot of playtesting, which I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's funny because that uh, sequence kind of induced a little bit of anxiety in me where I was sure because you were getting so comfortable with the fish head cutting off and you're playing around with this game and exploring the left side of the controller uh, a bit more. I thought for sure I was going to cut my own hand off. Um, I thought that's where this was going. Definitely thought that's what it was. Yeah, that was a good subverting of expectations. That was the original game design, Doc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The Gregory Finch bathtub scene I thought was joyful and super sad and the most emotionally affecting to me, the moment where I needed a little bit of a breather after that one, because um, that was rough. Um, family going through divorce and arguing, not paying attention to the baby as he drowned. Super sad. Um, or maybe they went through the divorce after, but either way, they were, there, was, there was issues before that. But another thing that I want to talk about isn't necessarily a death sequence, but unless somebody else has one to bring up because this is sort of the final sequence is Edie's sequence where she leaves you a book and she wants to tell you about something that she discovered about the original house. And I'm not too sure what to think about that sequence because the book is torn away from you before you can complete it. But it's, she's going out through low tide, low tide and trying to get to this house and she's discovering things that she forgot existed and kind of losing her way in the fog. I was curious what you what you guys thought about that sequence and if there what the meaning to that is. 
Can I can I ruin the tone completely with a fun fact about this scene? Please do. That Ian Dallas, only too late in the game's development, otherwise he was going to pursue this, wanted to collaborate with Weird Al to make a single about her visiting the house that you could play on the record player in her room. Wow, no one has anything to say. Okay. <laughs> I thought that scene was that's, really that's, cool. That's interesting. I thought that scene was really cool. And in its own way, it was like the most surreal of all of them. Because it's not like, I don't know. That scene's really it's, cool. It's and the it's only scary. person who's alive that you're playing through their eyes in that game. Sort of. Unless you count Edith. But what did it mean to you? I felt like there was tones of possibly Alzheimer's or dementia or something like that in there. But then... It's her thinking back to something that happened earlier. So it's maybe just her writing about how she can't remember what happened. But there's also the fact that the book is ripped away from you. So so in this scene, Edith is reading about, well, our main character is reading about Edie having one time where the tide was low enough because of a storm that she could go out to the old house, right? Yes. And she wanted to tell you something. She It was a book she made for you. She wanted to tell you something about the family, but you never get to see it or experiencing it. Well, wait, what, what else happens in that scene? The fog rolls in, right? And you get lost. You get lost. You see, I believe, a horse or maybe a deer out there. Um, and you see a bunch of, uh, I think there's like a baby crib or something like that. I forget everything that you come across. You come across just stuff and then the book is taken away or the book, the story just ends. Yes. It's, it's a very, um, it's the most, they don't tell you what happened. Yeah. The most unresolved story in the game. And if nobody has any thoughts about it, I kind of thought it was less of focusing on actual what happens in the story and more how you can, encounter these things with your family you know you you want to talk to your grandmother but she's getting older uh she can't remember everything and she has these stories for you but it's just out of reach where it seems like there's something that you have to know you have to talk to her but it's kind of too late to get to that i just thought it was very affecting um but that's a really beautiful interpretation i can't tell you how many times I have both in my family and outside my family been like, oh man, we had meant to get this person's life story forever and now they're gone and and yeah. there's just nothing. Yeah, I think that's, I, I to me, that's the meaning of that part of the game. I think it's done well for that, but at the same time, it's it's that same kind of frustration where it's like, but wait, what what was it? And that's... Going back to what Ian said, sometimes we just don't know. Thinking about it more, I'm not sure why that scene didn't stand out more. Because you're right, it really is like, it's unresolved in the way that makes you ask, like, okay, what is the, like, what is the creator saying to us? Like, look, why is this here? What does it mean? Like, on the one hand, it shows you that the old house might be close, but that's not really, I don't know. What do you mean by that? The old house might be close. Like the fact that it's within walking distance is she did say that it's very strange for the tide to be that low so it's almost like it's always unreachable except for this one time but like that's not how like 
that works, right? There's not really places where you're like 300 feet from shore and an entire, I mean, I guess. It's just kind of surreal in a different way. I guess we'd have to ask Noah. <laughs> was that a dinosaur <laughs> reference? <laughs> that was, yeah, no, was oh, like, that's the wrong one. Moses, damn it. Okay, okay, there we go. Yeah. Bible references. There we go. I guess we'll have to ask Moses. Just edit that like in. No the problem. Atlantic <laughs> oceanography something? Yeah, I was, I was really struggling with that one. <laughs> <In a way. laughs> All right, so does anybody else have any of the stories or do we want to move on? Because I wanted to talk about some more of the design aspects of this game. I thought it was really interesting finding out from some interviews um, about how many influential figures in game development kind of helped out with the playtesting of the game. Sam Barlow of uh, Her Story fame, playtested, called it Narrative WarioWare. That's the best description I've seen. I haven't seen that until right now, and that is absolutely incredible. Yeah, that's and that's so I would good. like a lot more of those. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> Yes, yes, please. Yes, I thought that was great. Uh, Genova Chen from That Game Company and Dino Patty from Playdead both tested the game before there was an ending and kind of helped guide them to what the ending was going to be of this game. And in asking, like, there was many other people, people who worked on Uncharted and a bunch of other games industry figures. And in the interview, he asked, how did you get all these people? And he's like, I asked them to play the game. <laughs> I, I think it matters a little bit that they did Unfinished Swan. It was a known game and everything like that. Obviously, you would have to have some kind of clout for that. But I just thought that right. was really interesting. I think it's also interesting in his interview with Shall We Play a Game, I never really connected the dots that a lot of... He claimed that a lot of Sony Santa Monica's indie division were kind of... I don't think he went as far as to say dissatisfied with Sony, but like the fact that Annapurna's staff is largely made up of ex Sony Santa Monica's indie team, I totally is obvious now in retrospect, but I'd never connected those dots. And I, I would imagine that that team had access to a lot of just really good connections down in that region, I would think. Yeah. I didn't necessarily view it as negative in an interview. It was more like it seemed like at that time, Sony was more focused on developing indie developers coming out of the Santa, Santa Monica things with uh, that game company. That game like, company literally had, was incubated there. They had the same deal as that game company, the same contract, yeah. the, the three game or five year contract or whatever it was. Oh, is that um, what it was? Because I was like, I don't think they've put out a third game yet on no. anything, have they? No, it was either a time limit or three games or something like that. Yeah, and got it. They had thought this and, game would not be as long as it was. Yeah, unfinished Swan to what remains to be defenders of there's a, that was a five year gap alone. Yeah, but um, also I found another another topic. I found watching watching Nate play this game made me realize that it is very difficult for me to watch people play games. And I <laughs> know from experience that Nate doesn't feel the same about me about a lot of games, but I think it's more narrative games I have trouble watching people play. I can watch people play like competitive games like uh, Warzone or uh, recently I've been getting into Phasmophobia and I can watch people play that if it's like a tactical game or a skill-based game. But it's seems a lot more difficult for me to watch people play narrative games. And I think it's because it takes me out of that connection to the game. I was just curious with us playing through this game, what your thoughts on that? Like 
I, did anybody else feel like mu- it was much more powerful when they played it? Not just because it was another playthrough, but because it's, you know, we're joking and we're talking. We're not focusing as much as we would normally and things like that. 100%. I definitely ran into that challenge while watching, especially it being a narrative game. It was just the interaction of what you're doing versus what you're seeing. And especially here where it's not just narrative being told, but there is some of it being told through the mechanics, right? Gameplay is the message. Yeah. That made it much more difficult for me to connect with it in that way. Yeah. I remember like we were at the baby scene and it was just like, it seemed like nobody was paying attention. There was like another conversation going on and I was like, well, (laughs) this is, I don't know if we're doing this on purpose because we don't want to experience this again or uh, what exactly is going on here. But it really made me think about that, like how I kind of hold narrative games more precious as a solitary experience. And that did kind of come up in one of the interviews as well, where uh, Ian had said a lot of people reach out to them about how being such an effective game and they've never played it. They just watched it. Whereas these people should play the game (laughs) in my experience. I, I bet Will has some thoughts. I feel similarly. I um, would rather not di- dive too deep into it here, but um, I do feel like it's difficult to to connect on the narrative front, like you were saying. Um, kind of relatedly, I also found that for me, kind of my um, uh, my the thing that gets me is watching people play turn-based games, particularly ones that I know how to play, because I'm like, oh man, you didn't do this and you could have done this. And it's like, it just like crawls up my spine. And it's like, I I can't watch you make this mistake. (laughs) (laughs) I could totally see that with you. Well, it's like when people don't take the right, the, the, the best route when they're driving. I'm like, but you could have just yeah it it, kind of made me think about uh just like discord in general because moving away from a lot of folks and uh having our friendship be strictly over discord i found myself playing a lot less narrative games because my video game time now is talking with friends and playing more mindless games or cooperative games and things like that um it's funny because like listening to a recent emotive pixels podcast episode on geo uh geo yes sir guesser and microsoft flight sim there's all these topics coming up and i was like yeah but then there's the whole fact that i don't play story games anymore as well um so it's just made me think about all that i guess for me i feel like all the discord time in the last few years has really caused me to go kind of the other way because i was really finding gaming to feel a lot more like junk food time so i feel like i kind of worked on the skill of i mean it sounds dumb but the steel series headsets having the chat mix style so I can like dial in to just tune chat out anytime like something interesting or compelling is happening in the game. It's like kind of a practice skill, I feel like. Yeah, that's a good point. I just can't like I need if I'm talking with people, I need to be able to hear them. So I just don't end up opening the game. I, I'll open up a lot of short little games I don't care about, but yeah, not so much things like I can't imagine playing like The Last of Us 2 while everybody's talking in the background or something like that it would just completely ruin the immersion. Yeah, I would. I, there's no chance I would do that. Yeah, and this felt similar to that, where it was almost like I want to play, I want to experience this game with you guys, but I just don't want you to move or talk. 
<laughs> but there were a lot of cool things that came out of that as well. Like um, thinking, talking to you guys about like the text effects in this game. Uh, one of mm-hmm. the very first ones when you're walking towards the house and there's the, I think it's just like informational text in front of you that tells you a button to press or something like that. But you kind of like walk through it and it like has physics and it kind of, you kind of crash through it. And it reminded me of the um, tires in that car game. Um, when you crash into those, I feel like there was a lot of cool uh, UI design choices in this game. I feel like somebody had some fun designing all that stuff. I absolutely love to see that. And now re- remembering back to 2017, I feel like it was more novel back then to have like this breakthrough effects that were happening within the game world than you see it nowadays, I feel, far more often. Yeah. Um. Another thing I was thinking about playing through the game, because Nate has played through it. How many times, Nate? Only two. Only two. So that was the second time. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you recall when I played through it with you watching. Um, I got lost at some point in the game. And it was right, I think, before the cannery scene, where you're supposed to go into that boat. And for some reason, I didn't figure out to crawl up on the boat to go in the window. I think that's exactly where I got lost. And I got turned around and I ended up backtracking probably a good 20 minutes or something like that. And just complete. And it's a very linear game too. Like there's a bit of exploration to it, but I think there was also a fact where I thought I missed something and I wanted to see it and then just got kind of went off on a tangent. Um, But it made me think about one of the things they wanted to do in this game was have that easy to find where you were going to go because they didn't want to, I feel like if that didn't happen to me, it's a very well-paced story. And uh, I just was curious, did that happen to anybody else? Or was it, is it just a poly issue? I was self-conscious about playing it because I'm usually terrible at like keeping a game's like level design in my mind and remembering where I've been, especially when I'm like on stream chatting. I think first time I got lost once, probably around the same place. And I was a little surprised that this time after like four years, I, I don't think I got lost at all. It's interesting. I was listening to a podcast today about it, and uh, Andrea from What's Good Games, I believe it was, talked about how she couldn't eat the second... When you're the owl, she couldn't eat the second... Is it a bunny or something like that? Yeah. And she was like, I ended up having to like go away from it and come back. And the developer of the game says, that's actually a bug. And we tried really hard to fix that, but it's like one in every 200 players it can happen to where you just can't catch that. So he, he apologized about that. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. I think one of the game design pieces about um, kind of the uh, sequence, the, the like designed path is there... In particular, you could theoretically sequence break because, if I recall correctly, the key to the um, the uh, what is it? The key to the music basement, box. right in the music box. Yeah, like it's right there, and you could totally just grab it and bypass several of the early stories, right? Um, you seem to recall that it's like not interactable until you like learn of it. Is that true? Oh, okay. Um, I'd be sad if that was true because they do make you turn it quite a bit. But there are other things that you don't have to see. Like, remember when you went back to see the astronaut story? 
and that's yeah. just kind of he, extra. Like, you almost left that room without seeing the astronaut story. Um, I I think those are there's something super interesting about the game design in making something putting something in the world that in retrospect looks obvious but when you first get to it you would have no like like you would not do it at all um uh give me yeah, i think two I think minutes gone of home did that yeah quite a bit give me a couple seconds of spoilers on gone home but there's like a part of a closet that you walk into and once you know that there's something in the closet it's pretty easy to find but if you would not but there's no reason to go looking for something in the back of that closet to 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 yeah anyway um there's a a ton of that is a super interesting game design philosophy that i i would kind of like to know more about and we'll probably be researching here in the future cuz to to make it like look really obvious after you've already gotten to the it's it's really interesting to to it, make the a, world line neat, up like that it's a neat intersection of level design and story design and how they kind of work with each other um yeah i think that's a really interesting topic i think the art and the level design in general is just so much it's good but in general there's so much of it that it that's probably why i didn't get really get lost is it's like like the the only thing I can think of that are repeated assets or even like repeated color palettes in some ways are the books. Like it's just really cool in that way. There's so much visual just like level design going on. And I think yeah, that's part of why you can like explore it almost. Yeah. That that's part of why you're like, really Oh, it should have been obvious. The lack, yeah. The lack of reusable assets like does make sense why it might've taken so long to develop the game as well. If it's a small team creating a bunch of unique, gameplay elements and also unique assets to get all of those. I, I remember a time I didn't notice in my first playthrough, but as you're walking through, I was like, why is there a chair up in that tree? And you're like, oh yeah, there is a chair up in that tree. And then you get to the kite sequence where the wedding party gets swept away from the wind and then it all makes sense and things like that. I didn't even realize that until I just thought about it. And now it's like, oh yeah. Or there's a there. throwaway line about a bunch of cans of fish in the very beginning of the game and it's not until you know damn near the end yeah. where you're like oh that's why there's a bunch of cans of fish here absolutely yeah. there's a lot of interactable readable things a lot of the books are repeated and things like that but one of the things we noticed was the workout craig do you want to talk about the workout <laughs> <laughs> i unfortunately didn't get a chance to do it ahead of this podcast oh, no. live on air baby yeah i was gonna say I, mean, I can just start knocking out me and will can just go at it i, I think i mean it's a decent workout 100 push-ups 100 jumping jacks or maybe i've been jump rope you know it kind of reminds me of the murph or one of those where it's just a you know all out for well a bunch of repeating one of these things your mileage may vary significantly jump rope 100x Jumping jacks, yep. 150x, push-ups, 100x, crunches, 100x, run to the mailbox and back. Now, if you live on a farm, this is a different workout. If you live in my house, that means walking to the front door, which is kind <laughs> of a problem if you're... I mean, just makes for a short workout, I suppose. Yeah. Where did we come across that? Was that just on the fridge? 
That was on a blackboard. I think it was on a in, chalkboard. Yeah. Uh, gosh, whose room was that? That was the room with the suicide, wasn't it? The suicide note? Or the not the suicide note, the, the medical um the clinical evaluation notice. Know what I'm talking about? I thought it was the guy that was in the, the basement. Video game guy. The guy in the basement. I don't think he would have been running to the mailbox, though. He didn't seem like he came out of that bunker. At well, all. so yeah, the screenshot that, that I have is a blackboard in a really a room that's really dimly lit with blue light, which makes me think of that. Like, not going to describe it good, but there is a like chores and behavior list above it. Don needs to sleep, sweep, and do the trash. Gus needs to mop, mow the yard, and Greg needs to be a baby. <laughs> huh. Yes. Can't recall. So one thing I did want to talk about was the soundtrack to this game by Jeff Russo. I believe it's Russo, unless it's Russo, but that would just be weird. I listened through the soundtrack. I'm not sure if you have. I did not remember anything about the soundtrack in the game, but I don't necessarily mean that was a bad soundtrack. I mean, it just fit the game very well where it wasn't so noticeable. But I found it to be a very enjoyable kind of ambient-esque contemporary classic soundtrack. And I was curious, Nate's thoughts on that, if you've checked it out at all? I have not. This is one of those soundtracks that I don't like listening to until the like the memory of the game is a bit of ways. Uh, I think that you would, you would dig this. It kind of gave me a little bit of... Um, uh, who's that? Um contemporary classical composer that we like so much with the um auction winery oliver arnolds from iceland yes beyonce uh it gave me a little bit of his vibes from it with less um quirky uh you mean mechanical. less auto playing piano yes 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 <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, i think you should check it out he's also worked on a number of television and movie um, soundtracks, including the Umbrella Academy and some Star Trek properties, Picard and Star Trek Discovery, at least season three. But uh, I thought it was a very, very good soundtrack. Um, and I do uh, recommend people check it out. That's if funny. You haven't. I think all three of those are great shows and I could not tell you anything about the soundtracks of any of them. Right. So. <laughs> That'd be perfect. And I was just curious if anybody had any kind of both final thoughts, as well as their interpretation of the game, their thoughts on the theme or meaning of the game. I kind of want to give Will a podium here. I'm curious for Will's general thoughts. Um, I really, I just kind of feel bad that I wasn't able to um, connect with this game. Um, it seems like... and. Not to try and sound too morbid or anything, but like thinking about death and my impact on the world and, um, you know, legacy, uh, these are thoughts that I, you know, come back to fairly regu regularly. And so it seems like the themes for this game would have, should have, could have been something to connect with me. And I just kind of generally feel bad that I, uh, wasn't able to connect with this game on a level that seems like a lot of people, others, uh, did. Um, so did you feel that way when you were playing it or mainly in our discord stream? 
Yeah, I'm... I, I have a hard time remembering why I never got back to it. Like some of it is, you know, I wanted to involve my partner with in that experience. Um, and like, I feel like maybe this would have been a better solo experience for me than trying to um, involve both my partner and you guys directly in the actual experiencing of it. Um, I don't know. I'm just a little bummed about it, but uh, I I do appreciate a bunch of the uh, artistic aspects of the the game. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my feelings. How about your thoughts, Craig? I'm trying to recall where I was at then versus now. Um, the one thing that's still striking to me is that for something that came out four years ago, to your point, this kind of anthology series of different experiences. I can't think of another walking simulator, for lack of a better term, that does something like this, right? And that's surprising to me that there's not another option out there that I'm thinking about. I'm like, oh yeah, something else riffed off this and, you know, has improved upon it. And going back to it, it was so novel to see some of the gameplay experiences. I'd completely forgotten about the uh, comic book one and kind of diving into that and just how much I enjoyed seeing that. Um, the cannery one has stuck with me for 40 years. Like that's a very, like it, very visual scene in my mind and one that I can recall. And for games, I don't have the best memory when it comes to memorable moments. Um, so it's interesting to have one that sticks out that strongly. And I think at that point it was, really strongly tied to how the mechanics interfaced with it more than how the narrative did. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just kind of shocked that there isn't more that's done more with this kind of format and that someone else hasn't come up with a way of doing this. You know, you see uh, like what Super Giant Games was doing or Super Massive um, after Until Dawn and then now like the Man of Madon series and you're like, oh yeah, they just decided to make a series of this type of thing and it's shocking that no one has made a series of this type of thing i was are you kind referring of that sorry way. i don't mean to cut you off but this type of thing are you referring mostly to the like anthological nature of it or can you talk more I, about what exactly that thing is yeah yeah i think it's the anthology nature of it but i think it's also having distinct separate pieces of gameplay that almost have like no relation to one another in some ways, right? Like they're like clearly their own things and it's a terrible way of describing it. But thinking about like Maquette that came out earlier this year and a game that does take you through a relationship and has different themes that take place. But to me, that's different than changing the entire theme between swapping between these different characters and you know, having entirely different visual styles, entirely different types of mechanics that you're playing with, like all of those different interactions are to me significant from one another that you just don't see. From a, a production perspective, it's incredibly intensive. Um, yeah. Yes. And normally when you start thinking about like the quote unquote production pipeline, it's like, okay, develop all these assets. But if you have to develop new gameplay mechanisms and then the assets on top of those for every single different thing you do um right like yeah. it i can see 
the amount of work needed to accomplish this kind of thing skyrocketing really quickly and that being something that people would immediately shy away from trying to replicate so yeah yeah i'm happy they did though excellent nate what are your thoughts um i think to me this is uh, in like my history of what games mean to me and what I get excited about in games, this is a really cool bridge from Sony Santa Monica's like indie stuff like Flower into the Annapurna stuff that I think we have today that's kind of more like this was kind of like transition into what I think is like triple I or kind of like almost Oscar bait of gaming this like sort of like high production value but like not triple A in its own way sort of like emotionally resonant like somewhat experimental like cool indie projects i think this stuff is really cool but i think this is kind of coming from i don't know i guess it feels like when i'm, I'm try, struggling to put this into words but it almost feels like this is when my like passion for that kind of stuff became palatable to a broader audience without losing any of its like artistic brilliance and i think that that's really cool um, I think this game's really cool. I don't think, I think death is one of those things we should talk about a lot more and in a lot wider context. So I think it's really cool that I think of the theme of this game as being death and exploration of it. Um, as well as, you know, it being about a dysfunctional family, that's always interesting and compelling to me. Um, yeah, I just kind of think the art factor is off the charts. I think Will's right that like the production pipeline is like pretty unfeasible for any other type of game. So it's really shocking to see it and shocking to see how well it gets pulled off with some sort of coherent vision here. Yeah, I don't know. I think this game's really cool and special. Agreed. Um, something I thought about while you were saying that in the podcast I listened to today from the uh, what's good games they kind of asked how come you're talking about death all the time <laughs> and um he was just like it wasn't our original we know we didn't come to the design doc like oh we're going to talk about death you know that's not going to be the the concept of the game but one thing they did want to do is is put people in a state of awe and when they started discussing those stories death seemed to be the place to get there um where it could be a happy thought a sad thought or both at the same time, that kind of thing. And I'm totally just um, butchering the real words that were said. So I do recommend checking these podcasts we referenced out and they'll be in the show notes as well. But um, so my thoughts on the game, I thought it was beautiful. Both times I played it, I kind of got different experiences out of it. The reference I had to Edie's exploring the house and trying to deal with a family member who's uh, losing memories and things like that kind of influenced a lot of what previously happened in the game for my first playthrough. And I kind of looked at it as just an exploration of dealing with a family and how tragedies happen in families and how you relate to another one another from it. You can write beautiful poetry about it, or you can outcast people, or why did somebody run away? All these topics that come up throughout a family and, and people have dealt with and just interesting interactive way at, at viewing that and i thought it was a beautiful story at that time 
But I absolutely love the way that you can look at these stories in different ways and get different meanings out of them. And I kind of invented this new theory as we were playing through this one that is is not right. It's not accurate or provable or anything like that, but it's fun to explore. Whereas I began thinking that I don't even know who the main character is, but what if this is a story of someone with... um, dissociative dissociative identity disorder and all these characters are just made up people in this person's head where it's all different aspects of their personality and how some of them died off and things like that and i went down this whole rabbit hole of watching all these youtube videos about dissociative identity disorder and nobody has this theory about the game but the more i started looking up the stories and there was correlations and everything like that i just thought it was a really interesting rabbit hole to go down and then also thinking about it could be about a cursed family i just love that conceit of not telling you what happened and and leaving that mind space open for you to play around with I really love it when games do that. So I really enjoyed this game. I like the fact that it's it's short. It, you can play through it in a single session, but you can get so much out of it. Um, the mechanics are great. The the art is great, and the writing is great. I mean, I just really, really appreciate this game. Super happy that Nate got me to play it. Uh, one of my first experiences, maybe maybe it was like the second or third, but it was one of my first experiences with walking simulators and everything like that. Probably Gone Home was the first, which I also loved. But again, not sure if it's a walking simulator, but just that whole interactive drama, narrative, interaction thing. Um, Super liked it. Definitely recommend. Obviously, you folks have played it if you've made it this far in our podcast. So we appreciate you listening in. Unless anybody else had anything to say, I wanted to leave you with another quote from the game. And that is, if we live forever... Maybe we'd have time to understand things, but as it is, I think the best we can do is try to open our eyes and appreciate how strange and brief all of this is. Thank you for listening.